Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host. And today we are very pleased to have with us Dr. John Launer, and we will be discussing with him his book, Sex Versus Survival, The Life and Ideas of Sabina Oh my goodness, I'm going to screw this up, uh, John Lauder. Spielrein, yes? Spielrein. Spielrein. The terrible thing about reading alone is one makes makes up sounds and, uh, and how things are supposed to sound. But before we get into the interview, um, I wanted to... Um, introduce the author. And he sent me a brief bio and and I will just go ahead and do as I do, which is to read it. In which uh, I learned that Dr. Lanner studied English literature at Cambridge University. Then he trained in medicine in London. He also trained as a family therapist at the Tavistock Clinic and practiced as a family physician in North London for nearly 30 years, combining this work as a family therapist and educator. He's now an honorary lifetime consultant at the Tavistock Clinic, an honorary senior lecturer, which uh, he informs us is equivalent to an associate professor at the University College in London, and the honorary president of the Association for Narrative Practice in Healthcare, as well as one of the founding members of the International Association for Oh my goodness, Spielrein. 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 Yes, Spielrein studies. Um, He's retired as a clinician, um, but continues an active career in graduate education in medicine, mainly in the area of interactional skills and supervision. Um, He's married to Rabbi Lee Wax and has uh, 20 year old twins at university. So, um, without further ado, um, a warm welcome. Um, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I think I asked you for this book. Um, Adrian Harris uh, uh, suggested I interview you, or somehow we were introduced. And and then, you know, as happens in New Books and Psychoanalysis, time passes until a certain moment uh, emerges in which I think, oh, yes, okay, these ideas are, these books are all speaking to each other somehow in my mind. And I'm ready to read them. Um, so last, uh, 
interview I did was um, with Ben Fong on death and mastery on the death drive. And um, I was reading at the same time uh, your book. And um, the next book that I will do after yours will be on uh, psychoanalysis and violence. Um, so as a, it's a, the autumnal uh, moment and uh, the death drive and I things relating to it are upon us. Um, so your book finally made it t- to the roster. It was always meant to, um, and I'm very glad it, it has. Um, to begin, um, can you tell us, um, as just a way to get started, what motivated you um, to write this particular, uh, this particular biography, this particular book? Uh, it has a most peculiar origin. Um, When I was on the staff at the Tavistock Clinic, one of my roles was to uh, help the trainees, the trainee psychiatrists, psychotherapists and uh, psychologists to learn about management. And we used to design a management game every year in which we divided them into teams and we assigned the teams to imaginary institutions that they were meant to be uh, acting as leaders of. and. Purely as a joke, I thought it was a joke at the time, I called one of these the Spielrein Institute. And at the time, all I knew about Spielrein was pretty much what um, any jobbing therapist knew about her, was that she had an affair with Jung, uh, was also his patient. And I believed at the time, although in fact wrongly, that she was later a patient of Freud. She was actually later a colleague of Freud. Anyway, I I used this sort of... um, uh, running running joke, I suppose, for a few years in the management game. And then one day it occurred to me this was really quite disrespectful and I should read about her. So I, I did. I, I read the two standard biographies of the time by Aldo Caratanuto and uh, John Kerr um, and found they were very interesting. Uh, later on, I found they were actually quite inaccurate, but, but we'll get to that in due course. But um, I decided I would read some of her own work. So I went to the Tavistock Library and I pulled out her most famous paper, which was um, Destruction as the Cause of Coming into Being, which she wrote in uh, 1912 and published in the Jahrbuch of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Association. And I have to say, reading the first page was an absolute epiphany. I mean, I almost literally fell out of my chair because it seemed to me on the first page she was doing something utterly remarkable for her time, which is that she was situating psychoanalysis within an evolutionary framework. She was talking about how human beings are torn between the wish to survive, uh, which means looking after themselves, which means conserving their own resources, and the wish to reproduce, which she framed it um, it entailed losing your own identity, immersing oneself in somebody else, losing one's psychological identity, and in a sense, losing one's own physical identity. And she literally describes the conjunction of sperm and egg as a loss of identity. And that she describes this struggle between the wish to look after oneself and the wish to leave progeny, to leave descendants as as as, as the central struggle of 
human existence. And she describes it as being particularly acute for women for obvious reasons, because their loss of identity in a relationship with a man at all sorts of levels, biological, social, cultural, at every level involves kind of tremendous risks in a way that to some extent applies to men, but 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 it to a much lesser, lesser degree. Um, and what struck me about this was was not only it was it was just an utterly remarkable theory connecting psychoanalysis with biology and evolution, but it actually anticipated some very central themes from modern evolutionary theory. It seems suddenly to me to be about um, 60, uh, if not 80 years ahead of its time uh, to treat with a lot of modern theory. So, so that's what attracted me to her. Uh-huh, uh-huh. She's um, nothing if not um, the word that came to mind. I mean, this was my first encounter with her reading your book, and I've since read a couple of of her papers, but um, there's a sort of a, a, a getting there before many other people, a precocity um, that, that fascinates. Um, and I found myself in reading the biography, trying to think about her early life, you know, thinking as an analyst, you know, sort of thinking, what, what was in the early life of this woman uh, that a- arranged her psychically to be sort of in, in the advance guard regarding, um, obviously, you know, the, I, I mean, Freud's idea, that's the most, the most obvious, but regarding, uh, language, um, evolution, uh, schizophrenia, um, can you, you know, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're shrinks, you know, and it's hard not to read, by read the early life into the, into the, the theory that emerges. Um, yes, I think that's right. I mean, the first thing to say, she had a tremendously, troubled childhood. Her parents had a very uh, conflictual relationship. Her mother seems to have been subject to all all kinds of uh, behaviours that we would now, I guess, characterise as hysterical. Uh, She was probably the victim of both physical and sexual abuse on, on, on the part of her uh, her father, and, and probably most significantly, in, in in my view, was the sudden death of her beloved younger sister um, when, when uh, the sister was six, and, and, and Sabina Spielmann herself was was about uh, twelve, which which precipitated a very close. So uh, we have all these incredibly adverse um, influences on her, and 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 most biography has actually focused. I think quite rightly on that aspect, but there was another side to her as well. Um, she came from uh, a, a wealthy, assimilated Russian Jewish family that was tremendously cultured, multilingual. Sabina herself spoke three or four languages fluently before she was a teenager, and in the course of her life was to publish fluently in German and French as as well as Russian, and she also spoke some English. She was a prodigy in many areas. She Later in her life, she uh, uh, attempted to be a novelist. She was a composer. She was highly regarded as an art historian. And when she was studying art history in Munich after uh, after she left her studies in, in, in Zurich and after she left Jung, and people were trying to persuade her to become an art historian. So, uh, uh, and, and she was also a gifted pianist. I mean, there's a whole range of things. So in, in thinking of her... The pathological sides of, uh, sides of her childhood, I think one mustn't lose sight that she came from an incredibly rich cultural background with 
with a huge range of understanding herself. At, at university, she excelled in every subject she took on, uh, in philosophy, in biology. In spite of this, this very, uh, this this um, very turbulent relationship with her father, interesting enough, she continued for as long as we know of to correspond with him about the most. Uh, esoteric philosophical subjects about science uh, and she stayed she actually stayed close to him for the rest of his life uh, and 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 actually um uh, translated some of his work so it's a very complex picture it, it, it's neither in, in entirely pathological nor nor entirely a, a, a story of a, of, of, a, of a genius it's a mixture of both well, you know, I, I guess what comes across uh, in in your book about her is that she's was a person who worked very hard, um, or was or was not maybe didn't work so hard, but was naturally uh, inclined to bring together opposites, um, difference, merger, excitement, disgust, Freud and Jung, uh, disequilibrium, re- reintegration, um, you know, sex, death. I mean, she. And so in just listening to your description of her early life, of these very strong, you know, kind of opposite, you know, opposing uh, forces, one in the direction of creativity and the other in the the direction of, um, well, either, you know, violence or the cessation of tension, whatever, however you want to understand the death drive. I mean, it's very, it's, it's very alive there, um, just in thinking through your description. I, you know, one thing that um, fascinates uh, about her work is that there's, in reading, like I, you know, went, I read uh, some, um, what did I read? Uh, Not just the destruction, um, you know, the 1912 piece, but also um, the language of the schizophrenic woman, um, you know, her dissertation, aspects of that. And I just thought, you know, she puts she does something that you don't see often, in my opinion, often enough uh, in the field. And I, I happen to write a bit this way myself, which is there's a sense of something personal. She reveals something of herself, not just, you know, in a sort of, you know, latent way, but it's manifest. It's clear. Absolutely. She's, she's Absolutely. on the page. Yes. I'd like to say two things in response to that, Tracy. The first is she is astonishingly uh, transparent about her own experiences. There there is an amazing section at the beginning of the destruction paper where she actually describes the excitement of sex and the immediate letdown after orgasm of literally, she quotes saying, uh, and you think, is that it? Is that all there was to it? <laughs> and and so there is this theme that she puts herself and her own experience in her papers. I mean, it, it you know it was it was the fashion in psychoanalysis at the time to be be very personal and offer disclosures, but 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 not to that extent. So that's the first comment I want to make. Um, the second is to say she was throughout her career a bridge builder. Um, she she refused to choose between. Jung and Freud. She tried uh, way years beyond when anybody else thought that they could possibly be reconciled. She was writing letters to them both, urging them to work together to 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 to, to 
uh, be friendly with each other again and to collaborate on on their work. She, uh, as as I highlight in the book, she later worked with Jean Piaget and psychoanalyzed him, and she tried to bring together developmental child psychology with psychoanalysis. Uh, later on, she worked with. Um, uh, Luria and Vygotsky in Moscow and, and tried to bring together what, what, what we would now call neuroscience together with, with, with subjective um, depth psychology and, and so on. I mean, in, in her later years in Russia, she was looking at ways of uh, you know, bringing Marxism and what was then called Freudism together. And she resolutely uh, refused to say she was one thing or the other. She resolutely insisted that all of human knowledge should be brought together in this highly eclectic way. I, I, I think it was a remarkable achievement. Sadly, I think it also contributed again and again to her being marginalised by Jung, marginalised within the Vienna psychoanalytic community, and then again in Berlin. She was on the on the fringes of, of uh, Karl Abraham's group in Berlin and, and so on throughout her career where you see people in a sense mocking her because she is trying to bring in ideas that, that, that bring them out in spots and, and they're saying no no we've rejected that we, we've rejected biology we've rejected uh, taking a developmental approach and so on throughout her career and she was saying no this this all has to hang together right Right, and it and seemed very insistent, and it was again natural to her to, to use that word "natural." But really, you see again and again her not understanding this this kind of like these binaries or these splits that you know it was, uh, and 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 yet, of course, she did. Um, I, you know, you think about how she was. You you engage this topic throughout the book about the. Uh, what it was that was uh, why why has she been so marginalized and you just touch upon one aspect um, but it's not enough right to say um, that it, because she was a woman I mean it is enough to say but it's not quite enough in her in her case um, absolutely right yes <laughs> yeah you know it's sort of like this oh because you know we know that Klein and Freud oh my god and I forgot to mention that Kate the the um, uh, piece she wrote um, of the analysis uh, with a child, right? Yes. And this is before before Anna Freud, before yes. Melanie Klein. Yes. Um, is that so many? I don't know. I mean, so many kind of didn't didn't feel they were standing on her shoulders yes. because she's yes. not she's not cited. Somehow she was hiding in plain sight. I, I, I think I, that's a I think that's a terribly good description. I mean one has to emphasize the positives, which is that she anticipated the work of Anna Freud, of Melanie Klein. She analyzed children's language before Jean Piaget and so on throughout her career. On the negative side, um she seems to have been uh, 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 totally unambitious, um extremely impractical and absolutely hopeless at what you might call institutional politics. 
so in a way, she could never see the way that the wind was blowing. She couldn't develop a following of her own. Uh, uh, she may have hoped at one stage that Piaget um, would become her follower, but he clearly had very different ideas. These were people who were all very, very busy putting their own names up in lights. And she absolutely didn't have a clue of how to do that, and I think wasn't the slightest bit interested in it. Uh, and even in her later life, her members of her family describe her as 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 uh dressing in very very shabby ways of of not being able to present herself well of not being really being hopelessly impractical and i think that was that was the other other side of it and you can you can look at it in in all sorts of ways you can say well it was simply part of her idealism or you can say oh for goodness sake you know you can't get anywhere in the world if you want to promote your ideas uh, you have to have these sort of basic skills in in the practicalities and in politics well let me let me ask you a question and maybe reveal something personal you know i've been running this this podcast for a little over 10 years where i uh and i support the work of other thinkers. I don't write very much myself, right? And I, I, when I went, when I was reading this book, I thought like, oh my goodness. I was like, I so get this. I get what it's like to like be really involved and engaged and, and, and yet to somehow erase one's presence. Not that, not to say I'm erasing my presence, but I am, I support the, the, the projects of others, right? So I, so I'm identifying with this book. I'm like, with her in this book, like, oh yeah. And then there's a, there's a moment in which you know it's it hits me like what did her mother love her? <laughs> I had this this it kept looming throughout, and I kept go I wanted to go back and reread and try and look. I'm, she's estranged from her mother for for what? Like I, I mean, just my idea being like you know the the, lo- the love of the mother and the enchantment of the mother with the child. I you know sets the child up to take up room and space. Um, rather than to work in uh, and work productively, but somewhat in the shadows, you know. So I, I was, I was, I, ha- I was. She doesn't talk to her mother for what? 50- Twenty years or so. I, I mean, the history is uh, she was sent away to to uh, be hospitalised in uh, in Zurich in in 1904. Um, her mother did visit her and carry on visiting her through university and shortly afterwards. And then when she moved to Berlin just before the beginning of the First World War, but she then lost contact uh, with her mother, actually to the, uh, effectively to the end of her mother's life, which I think was in the early 1920s, in 1923. Part of that, of course, was due to the isolation of, of Russia during and after the revolution and under the Soviets. But there, there was a time when the, she doesn't seem to have uh, exchanged letters with her mother for a whole year or more. Her mother was sending her letters and she simply wasn't, wasn't uh, replying. She seems to have had a closer relationship with her father in spite of what we would now describe as 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 you know punishment that 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 reached the level of physical abuse and 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 probably as i said earlier sexual abuse in the form of of caressing and molestation but uh, funny enough seems to have regarded him more highly and and to be very very wary of this uh, kind of flamboyant mother who was given to um, extravagant shopping and uh, m- making things up and so forth, who comes over as a, I think, a very intrusive figure and clearly somebody from whom 
um, uh, Spielrein wished to distance herself. I think I would describe it as a, a sort of centrifugal relationship where she's she's trying to to, to create distance from her mother all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's moments in the book where the mother gives advice, uh, like a seemingly unwanted advice about you know how she should handle herself, and and it's cringeworthy. It's like. Yes. Oh. Yes. Run! Don't walk. Run, Sabina. Run. Yes, <laughs> and indeed gives her advice about how to conduct her affair with, with, uh, with Jung. I mean, in 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 quite considerable detail. Having said that, I mean, her father was also writing to her when she was expressing disappointment with her husband. I mean, uh, she married in in. Uh, 1912, 1913, and the marriage was was not a success, was a great disappointment to her. But her father was writing to her, well, stick with Pavel, because to be honest, you'll never meet as wonderful a man as me. You'll you'll never meet uh, somebody as intelligent or or protective or you know and <laughs> kind of rants on about that in a way which is absolutely squirm making and it's hard to know it's really hard to know what to make of that of course the cultural context was in was entirely different as well as you know both both the both her parents being uh, unusual individuals to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah, quite. I mean, in a sense, you, you, it's, she knew where she stood with her father. Yes. You know, he was, he, he didn't seem to, um, uh, mince any words and, uh, you know, he was, he was more easily, easy to read. Um, but the, the, the mother's intrusions and, and advice giving that so, I was like, oh, don't listen to her, please. Oh, God, if you do what she said, you know, where are you going to end up with all this? Um, and so, so there's that moment where she just, you know, I, I was like, oh, the mother seems to have disappeared from her life. Yes. And yes. she doesn't protect herself. Here's here's an, my observation, right, right or wrong. But I kept thinking she's she doesn't really know how to protect herself. Um, I know that you know, Audrey Harris writes we uh, you know about her you know sort of against seeing her masochism. Um, masochism is a little too simplistic, but in a way, uh, she's she doesn't t- doesn't take care. I, I she goes. I'm like, don't go to Russia now. I mean, I don't know when you were you know doing your research and you're like, oh God, she's going to Russia. This. Yes, uh, I I I I think you were right that she often didn't uh, know how to protect herself. Uh, uh, I would not see going back to Russia in that context. I think at the moment that she went back to Russia, it was actually a historical juncture when it appeared that psychoanalysis might might take off and thrive in Russia. I mean, it's terribly hard to think of it now because our, our view is so retrospectively warped, if you like, by the sort of terrible years of Stalin's terror and, and, and everything that followed there. And of course, the complete eradication of psychoanalysis from around 1930 onwards. But at the time she went in the early 1920s, psychoanalysis had uh, a very high profile. It, it had, I mean, Trotsky in particular, who, you know, Trotsky had been a friend of Adler and was very protective and very nurturing of psychoanalysis. And, and both her father and her brothers were writing to her saying, you know, this really is the time to come. You, you could 
be one of the leaders, if not the leader of psychoanalysis in Russia. You're better connected than any of the people here. You've been better trained. And indeed, that was true. I mean, she she might well have become one of the leaders of psychoanalysis in Russia had it been allowed to continue after after Trotsky had to flee and 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 things went pear shaped for for all psychoanalysts. But I, it seemed a very canny move at the time. Um, so Except for that she's she's prescient. She's prescient about. Oh, sorry, John. I think I just spoke over you, and no, our no, audio right. went funny. No, I, I was just. I was thinking that she's so she's so prescient. She's so in the advance guard about so many things. And I think that I, I was wondering why do I have why did I have that reaction? Like, don't go. Of course, I know in we retrospect what happened, yes. but but it was it's one of those moments where she. She was not out in front, knowing. So, I mean, this yes. is not to fault her for it, but yes. it's an interesting moment because she's in. She's three steps ahead. Yes, you know, in so many realms, and in this step that would involve her demise, I was like, she's not three steps ahead. And yes, I, I wanted her to be. You know what I mean? Yes. Whatever that. <laughs> there's, there's a wonderful description of her. Actually, comes from Pierre Beauvais, who was at the time the director of the Rousseau Institute in Geneva, where which was the place where she worked alongside Jean Piaget in the early early 1920s before her return to Moscow. And he gives this wonderful description of her as shy and tenacious, and it it it, it really I think captures her that. She was not an assertive person, but she was so clear what she wanted and so intellectually clear about what needed to be done to knit all these different disciplines and all these different ideologies together. Um, Right. Shy and tenacious. Shy and tenacious. And and it it reminds me, this is is slightly off to a tangent, Tracy, but there was a period just after the First World War, when, or the end of the First World War, when she was corresponding again with Jung. And she was saying, look, all these different uh, schools of psychoanalytic thought that have emerged in the last 10 years, yours and Freud's and Adler's, she puts them all together. And she says, they all make sense if included under an evolutionary umbrella. They all make sense in their different ways. If you see them as, if you like, different lenses, different perspectives on the imperative to survive and the imperative to reproduce, they're they're just different ways of seeing the same thing. Of course, none of them took the slightest bit of notice of her because they all hated each other by that time. And and the one thing they had in common was they'd all decided to move away from biological constructions of the world and say, you know, this is this is not about biology. The, the, the psychology must have its own independent science that does not need to be rooted in evolutionary theory. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. 
They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right. And can you say more about her? Gosh, I mean, there's, okay. We have her her work on language evolution, yes. schizophrenia, yes. Um, sort of early death drive contribution. We have, uh, what am I leaving out? Um, child analysis. Um, yes, child it, development. Right. Um, I mean, there's there's so there's so much there that she is. The the book, you know, works to create a a story of the unfolding of of a life that seems extraordinarily and, and it, it's very organic when you read it. You're, you're not like, oh, what's what's she doing over here and over there? She's linking everything. Does link together for her and does hold together. I think. Um, you know, sort of intellectually, like of of a piece, Absolutely. and yet the yet the resistance she was met with, right? So, um, can you can you speak about? I mean, I don't know that a lot of uh, a lot of listeners, you know, they're all over the map, of course, but a lot of psychoanalysts and fellow travelers who aren't thinking a lot about um, evolution uh, in in this in this moment. Um, can you? flesh out for us some of her contributions to um to evolutionary i guess evolutionary psychology um can you uh, can I, you add or help us to understand this better um i i think um i, I have to say she never wrote directly about evolution she never proposed any evolutionary theory of her own uh, what you do find consistently throughout her writing is this insistence that we need to think about what we do to survive and we need to think about what we do to reproduce and why we do it. And, for right. example, she says uh, in, the, in the destruction paper, she says something like, I insistently disagree with Freud when he says that the drive for sex is about pleasure. Pleasure is essentially simply the hook. The actual bait is reproduction. We seek pleasure because, in a sense, we have been programmed by evolution to seek this very high degree of pleasure because it is the thing that is going to make us survive. I mean, now she would say uh, it's the thing that's going to make our genes survive, although she wouldn't have used that language at the time. She writes in the same paper of her own her own masochism, and she says, you know, to, to make sense of masochism, in a sense you need to see it as a strategy to square the circle between uh, the need to look after ourselves and the need to surrender to somebody else. There is this impulse that we struggle against but actually can't resist to surrender to somebody else, to, to abase ourselves before somebody else. So she puts things within that framework which is so much in keeping with with everything that modern evolutionary 
theory now says when she writes to Jung in the during the the first world war she she actually writes about attachment although she she doesn't um she doesn't use that word but she says in a sense the the bliss that the baby experiences at the breast she talks about this years before melanie klein is that, that this anticipates the the bliss of sex uh, and it's it's basically uh, in a way the the lure towards survival and the and the lure towards reproduction again when she writes about language uh, when she's at the Russo Institute in Geneva in the 1920s. Um, she, she writes about the, the, the development of the, of, of the mother-infant relationship as a, as a development which has a purpose. It has a purpose in a sense of preparing the child to become a fully functioning adult, to become a fully sexual adult, uh, and therefore a reproducing adult. I mean, I'm, I'm to a certain extent having to translate what she writes into modern terms because it, it doesn't leap off the page at you. She doesn't write it directly and say this is evolutionary theory. But if you, if you know anything about what modern evolutionists are saying, well, well what, what has emerged from attachment theory, for example, um, it, it's entirely consistent with that in, in a way that, to the best of my knowledge, no other writers of the time, no other psychoanalytic writers of the time were being consistent with. And if listeners are interested, I, I have written a paper um, for psychoanalytic inquiry a few years back on um, a, 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 a sex and sexuality from an evolutionary perspective. And there is a, a whole section on that, on Spierrein's ideas and how they chime with uh, what, what, what we would now call neo-Darwinism neo or, or the, 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 modern, um, the modern consensus uh, on evolutionary theory. Well, I, love, I love the question, what purpose does it serve? Yes. Um, somehow uh, it's very clarifying, and I, I think of that as a question that I is, is always in my mind as a clinician, what purpose does this symptom serve? What purpose does this, you know, and I hadn't linked it up so much with um, that as evolutionary thinking. In fact, my own analyst has a very strong evolutionary bent. I mean, I happen to know because, you know, I've known him for a Excellent. long time and I, you know, and I'm just sort of like, and I get, and I get very annoyed. It, nothing annoys me more. And, you know, like I'm a woman of a certain age, you know, I came of age and feminism and my, you know, crit, you know, my, my, my critique of, um, you know, sort of the, the biological, the importation of the biological into the psychological, but now I'm old enough, right now I am old enough to go, God, you know, the body really does uh, play a role and what what was I thinking in my you know 30s and 40s you know 20s 30s and 40s wanting to negate that role um, so I was much more pro I'm more primed um, to I was a little more open I was surprised um, having railed you know no absolutely not what do you mean what does this mean I for women we all are. <laughs> I, think, I think we all are and, and and men as well as women I think we've come through a, a, a particular period of, of, of uh, psychological beliefs to accept that there that there there has to be some kind of synthesis of, of biological ideas with psychological ones um, and there's just so much going on now I mean I'm thinking of neuropsychoanalysis I'm thinking of uh, the work of, 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 of people like 
Daniel Stern, uh, that, that's big, bringing all this together. And what, what is, is, is terribly sad in a way is that there was this 50, 60, 70 year hiatus uh, when psychoanalysis separated off from biological psychiatry and the two were barely speaking to each other before they all uh, they all started to converge again. So I think we're in a very exciting period now where all these things can be reconciled and, and, and all these things can be said. Well, I think maybe that brings us to um, a question I have for you. I know that you're, um, there's a conference that's forthcoming on um, in Warsaw? Where Indeed, yes, it is in Warsaw, Poland. Do you want to give the details? Uh, yes, it's uh, on April the... Uh, second to the fourth next year, 2020, in Warsaw. It is the first in, first conference of the International Association for Spielwein Studies, and I'm I'm very proud, along with uh, Adrian Harrison, Clara Nashkowska, and uh, Henry Lafan, to be um, on the steering committee of that association. I uh, it, it, it rose indirectly through my biography, the, the association, because after I'd written about it, a lot of people got in touch with me and I was able to pull together a network of scholars and it's from that network that the association has formed. But um, the uh, conference is not only about Spielwein, it's called Spielwein and the Early Women Pioneers of Psychoanalysis. And we're looking at if you like, women who have been forgotten or erased. Adrian Harris uses the, uh, the, the, the phrase erased a lot of, of women who disappeared from the collective memory of psychoanalysis and yet in their different ways had remarkably prescient ideas, ideas that you know, sometimes the men took them over without acknowledgement, but sometimes they disappeared without trace with people only discovering them in archives later and discovering how important they were. So we're celebrating Spielwein and, and all of those women. What about, are, is, um, uh, what's, um, my goodness, um, is any uh, inclusion of Dorothy um, Tiffany Burlingham, uh, will she be a part of that group? I Interestingly, we have decided quite explicitly to exclude uh, Anna Freud and um, Melanie Klein because their their they, their profile is so high. I don't think anybody right, has but... proposed uh, a paper on Dorothy Belling. It would be very interesting if they had. Uh, we oh. are including something on uh, Lou Andreas Salome, and there are one or two sure. other reasonably well known analysts. Margareta Hilferding, who was actually mm-hmm. who preceded. Um, uh, Spielwein as, a, as, as the first woman member of the uh, Vienna Psychoanalytic Society, although she left with Alfred Adler just as Spielwein arrived, I mean, literally on the same day. Uh, but somebody is talking about her. Um, and there's also Hug Helmut, who was uh, another um, psychoanalyst who tragically, like Spielwein, was, was murdered in the Holocaust, whose, whose works have been pretty much forgotten or erased. And there, there's somebody giving a paper about her work as well. Okay. I mean, I just, I thought of, um, I, I did an interview um, with Elizabeth Danto and her book on um, uh, Freud, Tiffany, on the, the early school that they created in Vienna. And I was really interested in, um, uh, you know, uh, Tiffany Burlingham's work because 
on with with the blind. She was very interested in in blindness, and I was like, oh, I had no idea how fascinating. You know what is? Uh, but I I had you know again, it was one of those moments where I thought I didn't know anything about this. Um, I mean, I know about Anna Freud, of course, but I you know didn't know even that. Uh, you know, her partner was uh, was an analyst. That was that was news to me. Um, so so, but this is so this is very exciting. I mean, uh, the conference is going to be um, it's two it's a two or three day conference, and it's um, and how many like how many papers? I'm curious how many papers like how big? Where are things headed um, in uh, Spielrein studies? You know, so to speak. I mean, because there's so many so many tributaries. To um, to explore um, well in relation to Spielrein specifically, I think there's something like thirty papers being delivered at the conference. They're, they'll they'll be grouped together in panels where people are talking about broadly similar subjects. Um, but I think where Spielrein studies are going, well, I, I'm I'm very happy to say where where they are going away from, and that is with <laughs> with an obsession with the what I consider to be a very brief infatuation with with Jung where he behaved uh, very badly to her and I think people have, have stopped being stopped obsessing about that and, and, and with the ghastly question of sort of you know exactly how far did their fumblings go uh, which, which I now find one of the least interesting subjects in the entirety of, of Spielrein's life so we're moving away from that I think they're becoming uh, moving far more towards looking at the work that she did on schizophrenia, child development, the development of children's language, and looking at how many later thinkers that she anticipated, really trying to uh, un- unpack her her work, just as just as she hints over and over again at evolutionary ideas, she she hints at ideas that, that you suddenly think. Goodness me, where where did I read that? And you think of somebody who was writing twenty, thirty, forty years later, but they're they're very subtle, and I think people are now are 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 reading her texts much more closely and picking up these hints and and developing them and making links with later writers. She's she's like a perfume, you know. There's something. There's like a she's, you know, like you can remember the scent. You don't know all the notes that went into it, and then the scent disappears, you know. But she was like very. She she create, but but the but perfume evaporates. I mean, Harris actually. Um, says uh, links her to um, some of her thinking to Lowald, if I recall, and some of her thinking to uh, uh, the thinking of Laplanche and on the and Lacan. I mean, it's really you know, I mean, which is so. It's she's she's generative. If you let her, um, you know, sort of wash over you, you you. I, I thought to myself, well, I'm a really limited thinker. You know, like I, <laughs> I mean, not, not to put myself down in that way, but I was reading and I was like, well, she's really. Um, I'm I'm quite limited compared to her. There's she really is uh, has a lot of her tentacles. I, I think that's right, and I have to confess, um, with, with no false modesty at all, to exactly the same limitations. I think Adrian Harris is a is a much more accomplished and knowledgeable theoretician uh, than I am. But Adrian also uh, 
cautions us to say we we mustn't start to project into Spielwein that she was the mothership from from which every other great strand of thinking in the 20th century came. This this is this is clearly not true because I think what one of the frustrations of reading Spielwein is 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 this thinking I we just wish she'd said more about that. Um, there 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 are these enigmatic. Um, Phrases and sentences, particularly uh, in the destruction paper, you think I, I wish she would would stop flitting from one subject to another and and just 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 stick with it for half a page to say more about that idea. And she doesn't. She moves on to something else. And as well as being a wonderful paper, um, the destruction paper is also out, out, outrageously. Um, uh, syncretic, pulling together everything from sort of the, the the Talmud to the physics of Mach to just about everything you can think of, and and you sort of wanted to stop as well. You wanted to go on. You wanted to stop and say just just concentrate, just focus here. And and she doesn't. So there, there's a lot of unpacking to do. But I think one has to be on guard, as Adrian says <laughs> about thinking that, that, that she did actually develop all these ideas because she didn't. No, absolutely. And, and that paper, particularly, I'm pleased to hear you say this. I didn't want to quite come out with it, but I, I was like so frustrated. I was like pulling my hair out. I was like, stop dissembling. Damn it. Stop dissembling. You know, you don't have to hide. This is very interesting what you're saying enough with the Faust, okay? Yes, you know? yes. <laughs> or the Nietzsche or, or, or <laughs> Anaxagoras. I mean, you name them, they're, they're in it. I think in my book I counted up the number of uh, of, of authorities she cites, and I think it's 40 or 50, but she really is all, all over the place. I mean, she was 26 when she wrote it. What do you expect? It was like one of those dissertations one has to read of of sort of you know masters uh, students or doctoral candidates who are just trying to show off how much they've read in their young lives and actually it's not necessary you want them to actually talk about their own original ideas but but you know she, she's fallen prey to that yeah I think you know it, she's also she's fascinating also as um and I don't know if it if there's been a lot of writing about her technically as a her technique in the clinic her technique in working with people but you know there's there are those in the field of psychoanalysis who have had their uh their psychotic breaks who have had their breakdowns and have then you know sort of through through the experience of breakdown have become rather extraordinary uh analysts and groundbreaking in terms of techniques some of them and uh, for myself, I, I thought, well, that's this. There's, there's. I want. I wanted to get a better sense of her. I mean, I'll have to do more reading, but a better sense of what she's like, what what it would be like to be in the room with her. Um, because I think people that have ha- that have breakdown knowledge, you know, that have really suffered and entered uh, treatment and sought help and then come into the field are quite different animals than um, those that just want to come yes. into the field. <laughs> Well, there, there is this there is this intriguing comment by Piaget uh, 
where he describes his analysis with her. I mean, it, he, he gives two different descriptions and they're a bit contradictory because one, he says it was a training and analysis and the other says he wasn't. And one, he said he was impervious to it. And, and the other one, he gives a much more positive description. Of it. But he says, we laughed a lot. We laughed a lot. I mean, the image not only of Piaget and Spielein laughing together, but also for much of her writing, one gets this idea of sort of tremendously earnest, serious, uh, intensely intellectual person. And, and here, is, here is this idea of laughing a lot. Um, and, and, you know, one, one never... One never quite knows does one of, of you know <laughs> it reminds me of my own analyst once describing his analyst and saying you know he would give give lectures you know uh, insisting on the purity of technique on the sort of neutrality of the interaction with the patient but would then be kind of immensely caring and compassionate to to a patient if if they were actually in distress or if they were actually going through some difficult life events i mean there's in a way there's so little we know of what actually goes on in the consulting room in that way but this lovely image of piaget and and spielwein laughing a lot well, I mean, you know, it, it's writing is one thing, speaking is another. You know, they're, they they bear a relationship, but sometimes not not one that's entirely clear um, to me. You know, who uh, the, the being together versus the editing, right? The, the sort of you're sitting, you're uh, get rid of that sentence, get rid of that sentence. So, um, yeah, I find myself quite interested um, in in what uh, the, getting more of a sense of her. Um, in the room as as a clinician, um, and uh, because I, I I I really believe people with breakdown knowledge who come through to the other side uh, make some of the most extraordinary uh, clinicians that um, the field the field has, and many of them are not very uh, not necessarily well known. You know, they're just people who we know, and we know uh, because of their experience what they bring and what they can what they can feel. And what they can tolerate feeling. Um, the sense with her is there was a, that that she may have been a clinician who could um, feel not feel at all, who can, but really come quite close to feeling at all. Uh, that's a, you know the 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 oppositions and the attempt to to you know no voice is ever wholly lost. That I kept thinking of that phrase. Um, while reading this, um, so we're we're just about out of time. I was going to ask how did uh, how did Jungians respond to your book? Uh, I wanted to give this quote from her, which I just thought, oh my god, this is this is from the destruction paper. I think where love reigns, the ego, the ominous despot, dies. Um, I don't know if this is this. I don't know if this is from your book or just from my. But I thought, is that where it was, ego will be? Is that where the subject was? Lacan, there I must come into being? What? <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, I'm not sure I can comment on all of that. Um, where do, how do Jungians react? I can certainly give an answer to that. I think there are that there is a rearguard of Jungians who still want to defend and exculpate uh, Jung's behaviour and who are very troubled by any account of the events and the interaction uh, between them that, that 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 points out that I mean to be honest he he was an abuser as her 
psychiatrist and university teacher, for, you know, let alone psychoanalyst. I mean, I, I actually uh, put more emphasis on the fact that it was an abuse of power in several roles rather than seeing it necessarily within the framework of transference and counter-transference. He just misbehaved with her as he misbehaved with actually quite a large number of his students and and, 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 and female patients. So uh, th- th- there is a rear guard of Jungians who find that hard to take. I have to say the majority of Jungians nowadays, probably the vast majority of Jungians, actually have stayed with his theories, but, but are, but are are no longer uncritical of the man, whether it's to his um, misogyny, whether it's to his anti-Semitism, whether it's to uh, uh, other rather unattractive aspects of of his personality. And and, and those unions have no problem with the book. I think they're grateful for the very close analysis that... uh, that I've that I've carried out. Um, I also say I have to say I did a, a, a reassessment of the entire relationship, just as a, a standalone paper, as in the International Journal of Jungian Studies uh, a few years mm-hmm. back, and that's available. And really, for anybody who wants a compressed summary of the relationship as I see it, entirely based on the documents. I mean, setting aside. Carlos is setting aside curve and looking at all the documents with a fresh eye. There's a summary there, and I was delighted to get that into a, into a Jungian journal, especially one as prestigious as the International Journal of Jungian Studies. So, so uh, I, I think most most modern Jungians do not have a problem with that with that view of of, of the failings of the man. And I, I can't help but to think that Spielrein would have been uh, very pleased with. Um, the your your ability to um, sort of build that bridge and get published because really this book draws a line in the sand. I hope okay? so. And oh, it 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 has. I mean, okay. I see what's coming. You know what's what's coming. It's in, in it. You know, in the aftermath of this book and its wake, you see a whole a a a, a different approach um, so. to to Spielrein. So you drew a line in the sand, and yet you. You made the you built the bridge to the Jungians, and they said yes. We'll, we'll, we'll publish. You know, yes, we'll publish I, this I, here. I, I, um, I hope she would. I hope she would approve. She never repudiated Jung. It's very important yeah. to recognize that. I mean, Freud was pushing her to say, "Can't you see what an awful man he is? Can't you know? Can't you uncover the hatred that lies be- below your idealization?" And she resisted that, uh, just just as she resisted uh, criticizing Freud to Jung. So I I hope she would acknowledge the the bridge building that that I've tried to do. Yeah, and Freud should have, you know, he didn't know a negative suggestibility. She's going yes. to, re, you know, resist that Absolutely. like the play. Yes. So, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, so thanks, thanks, Dad, but uh, yes. I'm going to do the opposite. Yes. Um, you know, that so you can count on me for that. Um, so, I think, is there anything else that you wanted to say for the listeners to, you know, know about the book, about uh, any future your future projects um, aside from the conference uh, regarding Spielrein or really anything else? Um. Uh, re- really just to say thank you for uh, making the, the the emphasis of this interview on uh, the whole of her life, the wide range of her achievements, on her eclecticism, on her importance as somebody who anticipated so many ideas and so many different fields of modern thought. And it's been wonderful to have an opportunity to, to say something about that.
Yeah, I'm. I'm very. Uh, you know, your your book sets your book sets the interview up to go broad um, and to go wide and to yeah yeah, which is which is a a real accomplishment. Um, so it's been a pleasure, um, listeners. Um, stay tuned for more. Uh, next up is uh, Manya Steinkohler, Vanessa Sinclair, and psychoanalysis and violence: Lacanian perspectives. Um, and uh, oh, just one more reminder for people who wanted to hear Anna Fishzan and myself being interviewed by Harvey Schwartz from the IPA's um, uh, uh, podcast Off the Couch, um, uh, On and Off the Couch. Oh, I might have gotten that wrong, but you can go IPA Off the Couch and you'll get there. If you want to hear Anna and I talking about what it's like to um, be analysts who, uh, who interview authors, um, if anyone's interested in that, you can find us there. So all for now, John Launer, thank you so much you. for your time and for your book. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.